All right, folks, here we go. Another strange one to wrap your brain around. There is a type of jellyfish that is an immortal. Yes, you heard that right. It can never die. I mean, it can, but it won't. Let me tell you more about it. The T. Dorni, the immortal jellyfish. So the genus is Turritopsis. Turritopsis? Species is T. Dorni. So the Turritopsis Dorni. More commonly referred to as a Medusa, probably because it looks, it's got kind of a Medusa looking hairstyle. But it really looks closer to like a pimento olive, like a little cocktail olive with Medusa hair. So it's, uh, yeah, it's immortal. I mean, it has the potential to be immortal. Uh, it has the ability, ability to reverse the biotic cycle in response to adverse conditions, meaning like, uh, you know, desalination um, or reduction of salinity, sudden temperature change, uh, Conditions of starvation, artificial damage. Um, so what it does is it, it transforms itself back into polyps uh, under these conditions. So it reverses age, okay? And it does evidently it does it pretty quick. It's, it's like a Benjamin Button deal, but it's like sped up in, you know, present tense, like bam. like. So if there's, a, I mean, aside from being eaten... Um, or succumbing to disease, say. Um, I mean, they most it, it, it looks as though they, most of these Medusa are likely to fall victim to the general hazards of life, as do other mesoplankton. But this thing can reverse course. It can grow old and then grow young to start over and go back to Back to the polyp stage. Back to life. Back to the polyp stage. So that's pretty cool. It's kind of doing a zig when we should be zagging. And that's getting to be pretty uh, fashionable these days, I guess. Or the concept, rather. Um, I've been reading... I've been watching some weird shows as usual, and I've just—it's come—it's—it's it's dawned on me that most everything kind of falls into three categories for me, and kind of how I relate to things and how they relate to me, and I go to the three C's again—the comics and the comedians, the chefs and the cooks, and then the car salesman—and how it all how they all kind of the commonality between a lot of them because they all have these interesting dynamics amongst them you know they you can create something from nothing literally with any of these vocations in these situations so for example all you got to do is write an act and you can be a comic right it's that simple all you got to do is cook a meal and you can be a chef, right? And uh, all you got to do is 
sell a car and you can be a car salesman. It's on paper, it seems fairly easy, fairly straightforward. No, no, hey, no. But um, it's the people within each of the vocations that are that are what define uh, interest for me. For one, you know, I'm fascinated by these people. You know, I've been, I went, uh, I went to the library. <laughs> yeah, I went to the li- of all things. I I actually went to a library, and I checked out some books. And I got uh, let's see, this book called The Third Plate by Dan Barber, this guy, who is a super interesting guy as far as kind of like conceptually food-wise. The the concept that he purports with the whole notion of how we get our food, okay? And one thing that he... Um, well, this particular book, it's kind of like the field notes on the future of food, okay, and in the, uh, right away, he goes right into it, and he talks about, um, of course, he's, he's the head chef at, at Blue Hill in New York, okay, and there's like a upstate Blue Hill off the Hudson River, and then there's the Greenwich Village Blue Hill, I guess, downtown, and, uh, he is this guy that's just railing against monoculture, so, meaning all the just single crop just you know just miles and miles of like corn particular i mean something specifically like corn which has low nutritive value takes up a lot of energy a lot of resource a lot of water for little little payoff and just you know you can do stuff with corn but um he Right away, he talks about this uh, type of, like he was given, one day he got a check for, uh, or he got a, um, in the mail, he got a corn cob dried and slightly shriveled, and it, along with the cob was a check for $1,000, okay? And um, so he didn't know what this was all about until he received an email from the guy who sent it, this guy named Glenn Roberts, who was a rare seeds collector and supplier of specialty grains. And so Blue Hill, uh, they're part of the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, which is a multi-purpose farm and education center. And he wanted to help persuade these vegetable, vegetable farmers that are connected to Blue Hill to plant the corn in the spring. And it was a corn, it was a variety called uh, New England eight-row flint. So he said, there's evidence that, uh, according to this guy, that eight-row eight row flint dated back to the 1600s. And for a time, it was considered a technical marvel. Not only did it consistently produce eight fat rows of kernels, um, which back then in the 1600s, only four or five was the norm, because uh, modern cobs have 18 to 20 rows but it also had been carefully selected by generations of native native americans speaking of you know we're going into thanksgiving here for its distinctive flavor but by the the late 1700s the corn was widely planted in western new england 
the lower Hudson Valley, and all, it was found as far as southern Italy, but a brutally cold winter in 1816 wiped out the New England crop. So um, seed res the reserves of the seas were exhausted to near extinction, as most of the stockpiled corn went to feed people and livestock. So, uh, so the cob that this guy had sent him was from a line that survived for 200 years in Italy under the name Autophile, which is eight rows in Italy. And uh, he wanted to restore it to its place of origin. So that's fascinating in itself. So he sent it to, or he coerced or he tried to coerce um, his farming arm of the farm itself to implement this, to work it into the system. And like a typical farmer, his, his, uh, his farm, this guy, um, what was his name? Uh, well, the gentleman, uh, this guy named, uh, what was his name? Jack something who runs the farm there. He, uh, he planted the eight-row flint, like the Iroquois planted most of their corn alongside dry beans and squash. Um, and it's a planting strategy called the Three Sisters. Okay. So um, on the continuum of farming practices, Three Sisters is at the opposite end from how corn is typically, typically grown with its military row, kind of monoculture style and chemically fed soil. The... The logic is to carefully bundle the crops into relationships that benefit each other, the soil and the farmer. So the beans, calls them legumes, which is actually French for vegetables, but the beans provide the corn with nitrogen. So the legumes draw nitrogen from the air into the soil. The corn stalk provides kind of a natural trellis for the climbing beans. And so uh, this guy Jack, the his farmer wouldn't need to stake the beans. And then uh, the squash planted around the base of the corn and the beans suppresses the weeds and, you know, offers another vegetable to harvest in, in, in the fall here. So it was, uh, it worked out really good and, and it was kind of a replacement for this polenta. Uh, you know, the, the typical bland polenta that you'd, you'd get, you know. And in my opinion, like polenta, you gotta, it's good, it's sexy, but it's just, it's singularly good. Like, it's just, you, you always know what you're going to get with just, just straight corn mash polenta. But this stuff sounded pretty pretty wild, but the really cool part was just the, uh, the integration within and amongst the three, and it's not, it's not like raping the soil, so to speak. But, um, so that was one book. Um, the third plate field notes on the future of food. And so um, the whole notion, though, was kind of, again, to zig instead of zag. Like, you go one direction, you, you, you go to a predictable direction, say, with acres of, acres of corn, you know, that pay back minimal, and the return is really predictable and kind of bland and kind of over... I don't know, it over, over uses resources and so forth. But, um, 
but this was this was an interesting concept and and that's what this guy is trying to do so um it's the whole zig instead of the zag but it's but it's looking at the big picture as well um so yeah i just got into just these mind these people that i consider to be well they're innovators for one you know and um takes me back to like this guy who uh, heston blumenthal i mean here we go again but uh, this guy's out there man he's really um everything is about well and he's not exclusive to this either because as i read about these guys these dan barbers and the uh, rene redzeppis and the heston blumenthal's their their whole thing is about zigging while everyone else zags so they so they do what they they you know they not only forge their food they're forging ideas put them together and looking for originality creativity innovation and it's got to be exhausting um like this guy I was watching last night um, on Chef's Table, which is just kind of a showcase on different chefs and uh, their mindsets and what makes them great. And this guy Grant Akats, they always have these, they always have these fucking names, but that I just can't say. But um, he um, he made balloons out of sugar floating balloons like they're just trying to outdo each other like it gets to be like i don't know at what point do you do you just like say hey man give me a cheeseburger but <laughs> but but the, the whole notion though is to question kind of tradition as well like not only what you're serving but how you're serving it and and then how it kind of triggers the multi-sensory notion like i guess the point behind I I can only assume the point behind an edible balloon would probably harken back to a childhood memory maybe you know they're trying to obviously inspire you to uh, I don't know to trigger sensory reactions okay so what did it make you think of what did it make you what did it bring you what place in the world did it bring you you know food as connection because connection is kind of what I'm discovering through this other book, but the the Lost Connections book is figuring out why you're depressed. And this guy Johan Hari, of course, it was it was about connection. Um, you know, and he takes it to a rudimentary level as far as like the individual literally being disconnected and how it amounts to your depression, the lanes that you you know, you populate and drive through to get to the point of disconnection. But the thing that Blumenthal made interesting to me was the connection, how it relates to the food, the literal food. But he he took it one step further in the notion that water, he, he, he uh, subscribes to this 
what's called the string theory. The string theory, in a nutshell, is basically like everything is vibrating constantly. Okay, literally everything organic is vibrating constantly, and the reason it's con it's constantly vibrating is the amount of water that's involved. And the water, because we're all composed of water, you know, human beings are seventy two percent water, give or take point, whatever. You know, everything is composed of some kind of life-giving carbon, you know. Everything is, everything, everything can be, there's, there's trace amounts of water in just about every living thing. And that water is vibrating, okay, and it's got different vibrations. The ground's vibrating, you know. Uh, animals are vibrating, there's a vibration Okay, but it's all connected to the water, the water that we ingest, the water that's already in our system, the water around us, the lakes, the rivers, and uh, but more importantly, what travels through the water is everything: light, sound, emotion, and so most everything that you eat is connected to water or has water or it's in water or it's around water or it serves with water 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 and so the vibrations in that water in that water are key are a key element to well first of all mm, just being a static carbon-based life form but also the the amount of emotion, the amount of vibration that's um, being introduced to your own static system. So, say through food, okay? So the food, uh, a good example would be, um, well, he, okay, he did a, and in every interview that I listened to with this guy, Blumenthal, who was a fast, just a fascinating, like, I would be, I would be just as impressed to see this guy work as he lived life as a repo man because that's what he did before he was a chef with no training and bought, he bought an old pub in Bray, England which is just outside of, of, of it's kind of in between Oxford and, and, and London it's kind of in the middle of nowhere beautiful town though but uh, he did this uh, in each interview he did this he talked about this rice experiment that he he had um he had um, kind of sniped from uh, who was the, it was this it was a I think it was a f physicist of some or some sort some type of science scientific person, but he took anyway he took three jars and he filled each up with rice, same rice in each jar. Then filled each jar up with water and. Then this was over the course of, I think he said, one to two months. And, and each glass, like the first glass with the water and the rice mixture, he showed it love, he showed it verbal affirmation, just complimenting it, talking to it, being nice to it, being kind to it. The second one was complete just, you know, ripping it apart, shaming it, tearing it down, yelling at it, insulting it. And then the third one left completely alone. Nothing, just ignored. So he said after a month or so, in the course of this one to two month experiment, 
the the one that got all the praise and the good vibes had like a golden kind of honey little tone to the water the rice had reacted with the water and created this kind of nice smelling nice to look at little kind of mixture the second one the one that you were yelling at shaming and talking down to had kind of this uh, soury kind of hazy look kind of awful smell kind of briny and then which was interesting and then the third one left completely alone was just like this it just staled it was just stale and just grayish and brackish so that was fascinating I, I've found that to be really fascinating and obviously the reason being is the the vibrations okay so the, whatever sound is composed of the vibrations and the vibrations themselves they have like a you know there's going to be a toxicity within that vibration which is going to be transmitted into the water and the water is going to react with the rice and the rice is going to react with the water so it's fascinating is that that and and that goes the same for i would imagine how we relate to each other human wise naturally you know i mean you can see obviously the toxicity in in our social media i mean so so much so that this fucking robot named zuckerberg that runs facebook decided to change the name because of all the bad flack he was getting and it's it boils down to a simple equation it's all it's all about it's really toxicity it's concentrated toxicity well i mean the reality of facebook is that that's just a date that's data mining all they're doing is taking your data and telling you how to live or what you should buy what you need to buy because of based on what you're what you're willfully giving to to them you know like that social dilemma documentary where basically they state you are the product you know the product is not facebook the product is you you are the product you are being guided and coerced and uh just the mere fact that the ceos of some of these social media companies aren't they don't even let their kids interact with social media that should tell you something because of the natural toxicity that's going into it i mean regardless of uh, any other socio-political implications going on that alone is a, a really big indicator so so it leads me to well the whole notion of just zigging instead of zagging, okay? If you feel like you're going in one direction and you shift to another, just the, just the dynamic shift is probably beneficial in, in its own way. You've got to think because of the, well, for one, a new vantage point, a new view, a fresh take, a different angle, different perspective. So, so that kind of, you know, made me think of, well, the upcoming holidays and stuff. You know, I used to, um, you know, I grew up, my, you know, everyone, everyone believes their mom's cooking is the best. And it 
they're right. And But I'll tell you, the only thing that I would have any qualms about is basically the go-to traditional turkey theme of Thanksgiving, which is so bland and boring and dry and, you know, 364 other days of the year, nobody's buying a giant turkey. That should tell you something. The other the other thing that was interesting, though, was um, the fact that what really happened at the first at the first uh, Thanksgiving, um, what's his name, Dan Barber, he um, he quotes this this guy, Gene and Thelm, Gene and Thelm Briat Savarin, who uh, lived back in the eighteenth, nineteenth century. He's a French. He was a French lawyer and politician, and. Uh, he gained he gained fame as an epicure and a gastronome. Okay, so he basically kind of founded the whole genre of gastronomic essay. So he's the he basically is the first food critic, first food writer. But what he said was, uh, Dan Barber quoted him as saying, "Tell me what you eat, I will tell you who you are," which is very indicative of, you know, us as a society naturally, you know. You can extrapolate that in all kinds of different ways, but it led me to think about what really went down at the first Thanksgiving. So, and I was always kind of a toxic little shit growing up, you know, asking why we're getting Christmas trees, why we're getting a turkey, why do I got to eat turkey, why, <laughs> why? But it dawned on me, what was the first real, what was the first real, uh, Thanksgiving meal, and, well, the f- <laughs> what it really was was, uh, well, back then, you know, the English, the settlers, the pilgrims, they were shown how to uh, cultivate beans and squash and pumpkin, the, the, the Indian tribe, the Wampanoag, helped them, and, uh, there's a kind of a variety of stuff, like other stuff like artichoke, Jerusalem artichokes, wild onions, garlic, cranberries. So there was some similarities. There was no turkey, though. Um, not to say that it wasn't available, but what they ate by the sounds of it was probably more squash, some deer. Uh, it was in the fall, and it was actually in the more in the fall of, well, the first... The first uh, Thanksgiving was supposed to be the f- in the fall of 1621. They, and the pilgrims celebrated their first successful harvest by firing guns and cannons in uh, Plymouth in Massachusetts. But the noise alarmed the ancestors of the contemporary Wampanoag nation who went to investigate. So there's a bunch of these local Indians kind of nervous, like these pilgrims are just firing off their muskets and shit. And uh, so, but that was kind of the first uh, assembly of Thanksgiving. Um, the first actual meal, um, more likely, yeah, just deer, 
um, fowl, pheasant. Uh, like I said, it was turkey. It was it was plentiful in the region, but um, most believe it was more like uh, colonists probably consume more like ducks, geese. Um, but in, instead of like bread-based stuffing, um, you know, herbs, onions, nuts might have been added to the birds for extra flavor, but yeah, no sign of that damn turkey. So, pretty close, but no canned cranberries, no gelatinous round can of cranberries or mashed potatoes, uh, maybe sweet potatoes. Uh, more fish. They actually probably had more fish. Mussels. Uh, mussels were abundant abundant in England. Um, probably scraped them right off the shoreline. Uh, lobster, clams. So there you go. Um, but they didn't make any pies. There, I'll leave it at that. But anyway, so question me. It, it made me, it made me, made me wonder, like, what the hell? What the hell's going on? Why would I eat this? Why would, why do people want to eat dry turkey every damn year? Like, it just makes you nuts. Although my mom's was, like, the best. But it's, uh, so I, yeah. I did a zig instead of a zag. So, um variety man change the direction you know forge for ideas put them together compose a meal try something new reimagine it you know and then and then just run with it um so then um then I changed I shift gears that I wanted to uh, talk more about or read more about. I got into uh, okay this guy Chuck Palahniuk, okay, who he was he's uh, I mentioned him last um, last episode, but this is a guy who uh, as a writer checks all the boxes as far as this guy could have been a comic or a chef or a car salesman. Reason being, um, he is the type that will bring you into a story and uh, again this is all about deconstruction okay deconstructing the, the you know the ideas through uh, well maybe well connection for one but playing with your mind also through connection okay we're playing we're reinvigorating ourselves we're shedding a lot of maybe some anxiety, maybe some depression through connection, through reimagining, through storytelling, uh, which comics do. Chefs chefs make that connection through, you know, their cuisine. You know, car salesmen, they have to they have to deconstruct their customer. They have to break them down. And then they have to bring them back up. And then they you know scare the hell out of them in the booth, scrape them off the ceiling and bring them back down. It's a, sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a numbered process, you know. So, anyway, I was listening, so then I got into this kick about this guy, Chuck Polinuk, who wrote, who wrote uh, Fight Club, 
okay? Which is, that's a fucking great example. This is zigging instead of zagging. So what this guy did, what he wrote about was, um, or what he envisioned. See, he was, he was part of this, um, was part of this group called Cacophony. And what was, uh, what was interesting about um, Cacophony was. Uh, it's a it's kind of this prank they're like a they're like the they're like the merry pranksters like um matter of fact one of the reviews I had read or some article I'd read kind of was how Paul and I kind of took over the reins from Keezy, Ken Keezy, which I don't, I don't I'm not sure what specifically they were specifically they were referring to other than they were both kind of under the guise of these merry pranksters of sorts. But they also both went to University of Oregon. They're both from Oregon. So, again, they're, you know, you when you're living in kind of this state of this kind of uh, double identity, in my opinion. And that's just my opinion. But Oregon, to me, is like this convergence of, like, redneck Pendleton-wearing, you know, blue-collar types, and then the hippies pot smoking hippies the educators you know the the students you know the liberal types but then and then and then kind of like their offspring like the hipster crowd the ones that look like kind of lumberjacks but kind of act like i don't know latte drinking hippies or whatever or ipa drinking uh whatever you want to classify that, what those people are. But so, but getting back to the impetus for which I believe Polonek is really cool. Like he, well, for one thing, he's really cool. Like, like back in the day when I was up in Humboldt, we used to do some crazy shit. Uh, we used to run through grocery stores, on training runs. We'd, we'd go through Safeway all in formation. We'd run up and down the aisles, every aisle, like in a centipede format. Not in a destructive way, but in a different... It's just kind of a... You know, we're mixing it up a little. The town knew us. I mean, it's a small enough town, being a little college town up there, that they were probably used to it. Um, although, I'm, you know, the idea was to kind of catch people off guard, shift your thinking. You know, instead of running along the beach or in the trails in the forest or the track or the streets, you know, hey, let's go through Safeway, fuck it. Uh, I used to grab my golf clubs, take my buddy Jonathan, we'd drive out to the sand dunes where we knew, this was after I stopped running. My buddy Jonathan, he was a runner, but he was taking a red shirt year or something, and I had already left the team, but... We knew they were hanging out the sand dunes out of the beach, so we'd go out. We'd I'd load my golf clubs up, and then we'd go out to the sand dunes, and we'd we'd practice our chip shots in the uh, largest sand traps ever imagined around the team. And they would just like scratch their heads, like, "What the fuck are these guys doing?" Like, but it was kind of a lark. It was kind of a joke. It was kind of like something like you'd see on the monkeys, some horse shit, you know, a little goofy shit. Well, so Polonic, he started talking about this society 
cacophony. And the cacophony is, they're kind of this randomly gathered network of free spirits united in the pursuit of uh, experiences beyond the pale of mainstream society, right? Yeah, it started about 86 uh, by the surviving, surviving members of the, the now defunct Suicide Club of San Francisco, which I believe they, they had a hand in starting the uh, Burning Man. Um, according to Polanuk, if you watch the movie Harold and Maude, there's a scene where they drive by the beach and you can see like the remnants of wooden figures and statues that uh, originally, that's where Burning Man came from, is San Francisco beaches, where they would build, they would build uh, these effigies uh, that they would eventually burn, but ultimately they were asked to leave. <laughs> Fair enough. I get that. But the basis was this club called Cacophony, okay? And they were the primary organizers of the Burning Man before they got asked to leave. Um, and he was a member, He was, a, but he was a member of the po uh, Portland chapter. And <laughs> so what they would do, so one of the things they would do is they did this thing in there's this race in San Francisco called the Beta Breakers, which is a 15 kilometer, like 9.3 miles. And at this point, well, it grew over the years. Um, a lot of world class runners run this thing. And uh, so, what these guys would do though is they would dress up as salmon and then they would enter this race. So, the race evolved and I remember this race being like about 50,000 people when I was in high school and then ballooning up to um, 100,000 or well over 100,000. So this cacophony group, the San Francisco chapter, would dress up like salmon and then they would run against the flow of the race. So they would be going upstream in the midst of 100,000 people. <laughs> He's... So, and, uh, <laughs> it, the, the whole exercise, of course, was about kind of going against the flow. I mean, quite literally, as these runners dressed up like salmon ran against the flow of a hundred thousand plus people. And then, uh, so, and then that idea got co-opted by, uh, Nike, who actually saw these guys thought it was interesting interesting concept and uh, sponsored a team to do just that afterwards in better salmon uniforms but it retrained your thinking so it zigged instead of zagged and that's what I found most compelling about it so this guy Polanuk and uh, I don't know he he's the type that kind of wants to tell the most eloquent story that kind of has this tendency to uplift or inspire and then bring you down to the kind of the kind of take the chair out from under you just start with the most inspiring or exciting or eloquent story and then just break your heart and so it's a way to kind of train your brain too to 
go to one direction and then shift to another. So, and in so doing, I think it kind of rewires your thoughts, your, your, or at least your process for thoughts. So uh, he told a story about this guy on a plane or lady on a plane. Or they were sitting next to each other, rather, and he was having a glass of red wine. And the I, she was sitting next to... The lady was sitting next to the gentleman and casually remarking kind of how she can't, she can't, uh, he was a, he was a uh, doctor of oncology and she was just sitting there admiring his glass of wine saying, oh, I used to drink wine. I can really love wine. I, I just can't though. I can't anymore because every time I do it, uh, gives me the worst burning sensation in my throat and uh so he paid little attention but as she kept saying oh, i just love i just love wine you know kept saying but you know i just you know every time every time you know it's but it's only been in the last six six or seven months that it's happened to me and finally at the end of the flight he said to her um you know ma'am what I would do if I were you is when you get off this plane, the first thing I would do is call your lawyer, contact your lawyer. Um, what you've basically told me now is you have a, what's called a canary indicator, meaning the uh, situation that you're dealing with with the burning esophagus is um, basically an indicator that you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you need to contact your lawyer and make a last will and testament because you'll be dead within a month. <laughs> so she was so freaked out, but, um, yeah. So that was, uh, just an example of just how you can carry along with a story and then just have the bottom dropped out from you. And, it, but it, I guess the design or the idea behind it is to kind of set you up and then knock you down to create a visceral reaction, okay? Just like you'd want, say, from a good meal or, uh, you know, a comic telling a story or telling a joke, telling, a, telling something that's going to bring you along and... Uh, and then just break your heart so that you know you're alive, I guess, to feel you're alive, you know. So he did that quite well with that story. And uh, that's, you know, typically what um, these guys all do. These guys like Blumenthal, Heston Blumenthal, uh, Dan Barber, you know, creating, re-engineering deconstructing food so that when you eat it and you expect one thing your brain expects one thing your brain is making a connection what it sees and then what it eventually tastes are two different things so it gives you that zigzag boom boom so it's the connection it's the food as connection what it makes you think of where it takes you what it connects you to how it Mm, reshuffles your brain, reshuffles your thinking. And, uh, yeah, there was just, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. It, it's, uh, 
you know, it's kind of like, I mean, here we are in the, it's, yesterday was Halloween. Today's the first day of November. I start thinking about pumpkins. I start thinking about when I used to go out and steal pumpkins out of, there was a farmer out back behind our high school that I would round up a truck and some guys and we would just go out and we'd take like an entire truckload full of pumpkins and then distribute them all throughout town, you know, in porches where people, mm, people that we knew, you know, and people that we didn't, uh, maybe weren't the types to go out and get a pumpkin to carve, you know, or uh, decorate, and we would leave a mountain of pumpkins. (laughs) Just... It probably pissed them off. I'm sure it did. I mean, they were full pumpkins. They were live pumpkins. Um, and if you weren't going to carve a pumpkin, you know, create a jack-o'-lantern, well, now you had the opportunity to do 30 or 40 if you wanted. But uh, I don't know what it compelled me to do that, but I think it had something to do with just the flip side of expectation maybe you didn't want to carve a pumpkin now you have 40 to choose from or you know it wasn't destructive you know we didn't throw them we didn't break them we just put them on people's porches you know exponentially (laughs) and left it at that so I don't know. Could have been just out of boredom. Could have been out of just sheer just inventiveness. What it, or something to do, something to break up the monotony. You find yourself compelled to do that sometimes, you know. Um, so, interestingly enough, Paul and Aki told one other story about Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi Goldberg back in the day was a an assassin. She was just a killer in in the area of comedy. Like, she she used to be, like, a legend. Well, she is a legend. I mean, she can still... I would still consider her legendary, even though she does that fucking mind-numbing show, The View, now. But back in the day, she was a killer. She was a murderer out on the comic scene, you know? And she told this story, or she had this act, she had this bit. She talked in this kind of surfer language about you know, hanging out with surfers and going surfing and just kind of creating these images in your head about the beach and the serenity of the beach and the enjoyable aspects of surfing and hanging out with people and upbeat and really cool. And then at the end, she talks about a guy that impregnated her and how she just haphazardly matter-of-factly just out one day just decided she would give herself a a, uh, coat hanger abortion from the guy that impregnated her in the midst of without skipping a beat without changing the tempo and then came back around talked more about the surfing talked about the beach the sun the weather and uh, but your mind it just stops it just like you're trying to like your brain's 
probably just taking bucks of, buckets of water out of the lifeboat because you're like, what the fuck did you just say? What what just happened here? But the idea is like, it's shifting gears just instantly, man. It's just turning on a dime, and it's shifting your you know your, your sensory receptors to like couple together the beauty of a day at the beach with a coat hanger abortion just just the most heartbreaking thing that you could even imagine and yeah the people the creatives that can do that the comics that can do that that can shift gears like that or the chefs that can take a monoculture item like corn rethink it reinvent it turn it into something else turn it into a mind fuck like Thomas Keller at the French Laundry say what you want about the French Laundry and Gavin Newsom and all that bullshit but that was the number one restaurant in the world back in uh, what year did he win I think it was oh oh something uh French Laundry it's the French oh 2004 that's what it was uh 2004, and the Fat Duck Hester Blumenthal's restaurant won in 05. French Laundry won 03, 04. The Fat Duck was second in 04 and won in 05. And then the Fat Duck Blumenthal's restaurant was second in 06, 07, 08, 09. So that's heady company. But I was watching Bourdain, uh, what episode, it was like an old reservation, when he went to go eat at the French Laundry, and the first, uh, the first item on the menu was like this, uh, I don't know what you call it, a mousse-bouche, some kind of aperitif, no, not an aperitif, but something to kind of start your palate, and it was a, uh, like an ice cream cone, it was made out of it what looked like a watermelon with with the seeds but it was obviously it was some kind of some kind of mixture some kind of some kind of material that you make ice cream cones out of but it was it was that salmon pink like a watermelon would be and then a, a salmon tartare in round form looking like the scoop of an ice cream going on top of that. So when you get it, it looks like you're eating some kind of watermelon sorbet, but in fact, it was a salmon tartare. So that right there just ch- just fucking zigzags you. Bam, you get in there. You're like, oh, here's something sweet to start your, start, your, start the evening, start the 15-course meal or 20-course 20, 20 tasting menu. But the first thing you eat just totally makes your mind do a U-turn. So you you just know. See, the chefs want to fuck with your head. Just like car salesmen. Car salesmen want to fuck with your head. They want to bring you in. They're not going to give you any information on price. You know, they're going to answer your questions, but they're going to answer it. They're going to tiptoe around. They're going to give you vague answers. They're going to, you know, price it, sir. Price is the easiest part of my job. How much is this going to be? How much can you, can you do? Can you hook me up on this one? Can you make me a deal? Sir, price is the, that's the easiest part of my job. We just got to make sure this is the right vehicle. Have you driven this vehicle? 
I mean, how do you know if you're even going to, what, what, what does it matter what the price is if you don't like the vehicle, you know? Then you get them in there and you show them full sticker and they either storm out or you got to scrape them off the ceiling. And so that is, uh, well, in a nutshell, what uh, a lot of these guys do. They they want you to zig instead of zag. They want you to, they want to do like the immortal jellyfish. They want to, they want to return to your polyp stage. They want to deconstruct you. They want to break you down. They want to start you over as a child, you know, so that you can reinvent your thinking. And that that's enough to win a Nobel Prize. That's enough to win best restaurant of the year. It's enough to win you top dog at any dealership, you know? So it's it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. And it kind of trains you to just don't accept the status quo. Don't look at something at face value. Don't judge what you see merely by what you see. Because there's four other senses that five of the senses that you're going to have to contend with to evaluate the situation. I think that's fascinating. I find that fascinating. But lastly, I just want to, well, I want to give a shout out to Arch Manning, okay, in the realm of sports, in the realm of football. He's a 17-year-old quarterback who is, whose uncles have won four Super Bowl championships, Uncle Eli and Uncle Peyton. So I guess this is the son of Cooper Manning, their their other brother, who was like a fi- he's a finance guy, but uh, their grandfather is the great Archie Manning, the former New Orleans Saints quarterback who I used to watch when I was nine years old, and now I'm watching his grandson, who's the most sought after quarterback in the country. So how do you like that? Jesus, I'm old. Oh my God. That really fucks up my perspective on thinking. I should have, I should have zagged when I really zigged. But anyway, that is that is the show for today, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, if you got any questions, just keep them to yourself. And um, again, just challenge the status quo. You know, react. Think about it. Anywho, I will talk at you all later. And arrivederci, babies.